The film review podcast for movies most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free or whether it should be thrown back into oblivion forever. We review the films others tend to forgive. Ho, ho, ho. Hello, everyone. I hope you've got your Christmas trees set up and your lights and decorations for the festive season. And welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental film review podcast with me, Dan, considering going to a free outdoor screening of Gremlins before Christmas in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) And me, Conrad, highlighting films I want to watch on TV over Christmas in my festive double edition of the Radio Times in Cambridge, UK. Oh, in this podcast, we discuss fantastical films, sci-fi, horror, and fantasy, because we just like to invite strange, overweight, oddly dressed men into our houses to give us mystery boxes. Oh. (laughs) How are you, Conrad? I'm very well. I'm getting very excited about Christmas because I love it. How about you? Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm also uh, gearing for the impending summer that will just annihilate everyone because it's just so damn hot. But uh, yeah, excited nonetheless. Oh, it's minus two here. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So whereas you're considering going to see Gremlins outdoors, I'm actually going to see it tonight in 4K indoors in the pool. (laughs) I'm really excited they've re-released that. I love that movie. Yeah, I love it too. So Conrad, any mailbag today? Yes, we have some fantastic mailbag. On the Dead Zone, Ronin Drone said, Every time someone says, I wish our president was more like Martin Sheen, I think of this movie and shudder. Oh, because he he played the president in West Wing, didn't he? He did, yeah, for seven seasons from 1999 to 2006. And I have never seen it. Have you? No, no. I I actually stay well clear of political drama. I haven't seen House of Cards either. So I don't know. It's just not my thing. (laughs) No, me neither. But presumably he was a much nicer president in that than he is in the dead zone. Surely, yes. Uh, Further back, we had a comment on the faculty talking about uh, Piper Laurie slapping water in her face. Stephen Gavis said, When I heard this part of the podcast, I literally said out loud at my desk in work, Oh my God, I always thought that was so funny. (laughs) (laughs) So we made someone feel as though they're not alone out there, which is always good. (laughs) Yes, that's amazing. He also said, whenever I'm super thirsty and I'm chugging water at the water cooler, I say, I'm in the faculty and nobody gets the reference. (laughs) Need better work colleagues, I think. I'm going to start doing that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. But my favourite mailbag of all was when I tweeted the clip from the faculty episode where I pointed out that B.B. Neweth kept dropping her keys when she really should have been using them as a weapon or as a means of escape from Robert Patrick. Mm. None other than B.B. Neweth herself replied, 
in all caps, because I had a fucking pencil through my hand and I was being chased by a madman. <laughs> Tough to stay coordinated. Yeah. <laughs> Fair call. Yeah. And then in normal case after that, also blood is slippery. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love Bibi Nua so much. Mm. And she makes some very fair points. Yes. <laughs> Conrad, so it is Christmas. Uh, mm. Are we doing a Christmas movie this episode? Well, let me just pop over to the oubliette and find out. Yeah. <gasps> wow. It's like a sorority house in here. Very nicely decorated. Oh, yes. Oh, I better get that phone. Nobody's here. Let me look at Oh, weird. Oh, that's really strange. <laughs> oh, look. There's a film on a rocking chair and someone's wrapped it for us. But they've wrapped it in cellophane so I can see what it is. Never mind. Oh, back. Ugh. I know what you did, nasty Billy. Right. OK, unwrap that present for us. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> really weird wrapping. OK, the film that we have is Black Christmas, a 1974 Canadian slasher film produced and directed by Bob Clark, written by A. Ron Moore. It stars Olivia Hussey as Jess, Kier Doulet as her piano-smashing boyfriend, Peter, Margot Kidder as Spicy Barb, John Saxon as Obligatory Policeman, Andrea Martin as Phyllis, and Lynn Griffin as Claire. Mm. And what's this festive movie about? Well, twas the night before Christmas, and all through the sorority house... Not a creature was stirring, except for the deranged killer who's picking off the students one by one and dragging their lifeless bodies into his secret lair in the attic. Oh no! Yes, <laughs> in Black Christmas, a selection of strong female archetypes, the practical good-hearted Jess, sassy and brassy Barb, and eternal virgin Claire get to enjoy some of the very best of festive traditions, getting jolly phone calls from strangers shrieking with excitement. Mm. listening to carolers while being stabbed with a glass unicorn and relaxing in an old rocking chair with a plastic bag on their head. <laughs> Always been one of my favourites. It sounds like a holiday romp. <laughs> mm. Will they realise something is amiss before the house mother's body begins to smell? Will they discover the identity of the killer before spring term starts? Will they escape when they find out that the calls are coming from inside the house? Find out in Bob Clark's seminal slasher, Black Christmas. <laughs> Oh, and we will be having someone join us too. Thank goodness, yes, because two guys sneaking into a sorority house is not a good look. Mm, nope. <laughs> no, so we're joined by a very special and very wonderful actress. After the break. Mm. Welcome back. Joining us today is an actor whose career spans television on hit shows from Ryan's Hope to Chicago Hope, theatre and film, where she's memorably battled homicidal robots in a shopping mall and ensnared an unsuspecting private detective as a chillingly schizophrenic femme fatale. But she's best loved among genre fans for playing the spunky apocalypse survivor Sam Belmont in one of my all-time favourite Christmas movies, Night of the Comet. Yes, it's Kelly Maroney. Hey. That was one of the 
loveliest introductions ever. Would you mind sending me a copy of that? I'll just hand it to others. It's <laughs> 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 great. I would be happy to. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, this is our Christmas episode, so season's greetings to you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Happy Kwanzaa. <laughs> happy New Year. <laughs> there are so many now. <laughs> of course, we couldn't fail to pick a festive favourite for our film to discuss, and you chose the film that we will be discussing today. I was wondering yeah. if you could talk about why you chose it and why you were interested in resurrecting this film from obscurity. It's the funniest thing right before I talked to you guys about doing the show. Black Christmas was running on cable and I thought I have to record this. Just It was just a synchronicity thing. Mm. Black Christmas was the first horror movie I ever saw in the theater because the woman who was supposed to be watching me at the time, mm-hmm. we skipped school and we took the bus downtown and she dumped me in a theater where Black Christmas and then Emmanuel was playing. You know, it was just kind of a super funky theater. And she left me there. So I'm watching Black Christmas and then I got to certain points, which we'll talk about later. I thought, I'm going to see what the other movie is. <laughs> so I ran over there and I saw like, you know, people boxing and naked. And so I went, nope. And after I got through the initial shock of seeing it on the big screen, I'd only seen horror on television. Um. I was enthralled. I was speechless, and then I got home, and I had to lie to my mother. I was like, how was school today? Great. (laughs) (laughs) And to have Black Christmas be the first thing you saw on the big screen is amazing, because it's so much more inventive than a lot of other things I could have seen first. Yeah. So that's why I chose Black Christmas. It's a fascinating choice, because although... Halloween tends to be thought of as the launching point for the whole slasher craze that built over the 80s and died a little bit and then came back in the late 90s with Scream and so on. People tend to forget that Black Christmas came before Halloween Mm. and it really started some of the trends that we see now. I have a bit of trivia that you might find interesting Mm. and that is that Carpenter worked with Bob Clark who did Black Christmas and He said, I love Black Christmas. Is there ever going to be a sequel? And he said, I don't think so. But if there were, I'd pick another holiday, like Halloween. And he gave him the idea, but then he very kindly says, he deserves full credit because I said I had an idea does not make me the creator of this. Uh, But get it? Black Christmas, Halloween. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was so cool. It is, yeah. So it definitely did inspire Halloween directly in that case. Godmother, Godfather, yes. Wow. I know, I love that bit of trivia. Yeah. Well, it's good that he's, uh, yeah, not uh, bitter and going to court over it. He was never that guy. <laughs> he was never, you know. Bob Clark is one of my favorite. I wish that he'd made a ton more movies, but I can notice the difference between A Christmas Story and Black Christmas, the colors that he used and the pacing that he had. There's just something about him as a person that comes through his movies that I really like. Yeah. A lot of times you just, you know somebody's work, but it means you don't necessarily know anything about them as a person. I feel like we know him. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating that Bob Clark directed two Christmas movies. One of them is the proto-slasher thriller And the other one is like this family favourite that used to sort of run on a loop on cable, as I understand it. Yeah, the nostalgia factor. You'll shoot your eye out. It's so (laughs) shocking. (laughs) But after you see Black Christmas, now I want to go back and review again Christmas Story because I'm sure that I'm going to catch some sly humour and weirdness in it that I didn't see before. 
Yeah, sure. Mm. Yeah, I was very surprised to look up his other films, and he, he's done Porky's One and Two. He did Baby Geniuses One and Two. <laughs> so Black Christmas is definitely a departure from his usual comedy. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah, <laughs> it's very strange. So the film itself is quite unusual in terms of its structure because. The first shot is just an establishing shot of the sorority house, which will be our setting. It's Christmas time. There are red and green lights. There's a silent night choir singing on the soundtrack. And the second shot, before we've even met any characters, is a point of view shot <laughs> of the killer. It's good, right? Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like let's spend half an hour meeting the plucky girls that will be picked off one by one. <laughs> You're right in this situation where this house is being invaded, which is really surprising. Magnificent, because I do want to know the characters so I can care about them, mm. but also to get right to it like that. I don't know if our attention would have been held. It's like, okay, we're at a sorority and it's Christmas and where is the killer? <laughs> and the fact, too, that it was, a, was it a steady cam? Was that ever done before? Yeah, I think John Carpenter was the first one to actually use the panaglide to sort of steady it up. Uh, so this is fairly handheld, I think, in this movie. That's what it looks like to me. Mm. But yeah, I don't think anybody had really gone this far, except possibly Peeping Tom in the 60s. Oh, it's a really effective device. It is, yeah. Yeah, I read that the cinematographer Albert J. Dunk created this harness, this shoulder harness, so that he could still walk while having this, I'm assuming, massive 70s camera strapped to his shoulder. Yeah. Because he had to climb a trellis into the house. He had to climb a ladder into the attic. It's, uh, wow. It must have been a very unwielding thing to pull off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, considering how cumbersome, this is 1974, it's a low-budget movie, and yet the camera work in this movie is so fluid and so complicated. There are lots of single takes going from multiple different setups and different characters, and it's pretty amazing what he managed to pull off. It can't have been simple. No, and the fact that it's following people here and there, it gives it a much more, rather than cutting, 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 it gives you the feeling that you're in the room. Exactly. Mm. I completely agree. You really did feel like you were in the room. And and the way that the camera kind of wanders around the room as well, it does feel like every shot there's someone else there just kind of lurking around the corner. Mm. Yeah. Then also you never, that makes me feel like I never really know where that killer is too. Mm. It's really smart. I mean, I can't get over it. It is. It's way ahead of its time and incredibly tense. Yeah. And I was wondering, would he feel like, I don't know what these people are talking about. I just went in there and shot it, which sometimes (laughs) does happen. And then we really do something that he was just like, I don't know. I just needed to do it that way. Yeah. I wonder what he would say. He probably would think, I can't, I don't know where they came up with that. Even though it's an incredibly tense film, it isn't exploitative. Mm-hmm. So much of the slasher genre, especially in the 80s, once you got into the Friday the 13th, was very much about nudity and exploiting women and then violence against women as spectacle, mm. which really gave it a bad taste in the mouth towards the end. Why do you think that happened? I don't know. It's a deeply troubling period, I think, in filmmaking that you end up with this whole seam of movies that's all about exposing female flesh and then punishing it, particularly women who are sexually liberated. Maybe it's a response to the women's liberation movement in the 60s and 70s. 
In terms of women's liberation, this film is particularly fascinating in that its main character, played by Olivia Hussey, Jess, she has this drama that's going on. Yes. She is in a relationship with Keir Dulay, he of 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. uh, who is another student, a slightly more mature student. Yes, a 38-year-old, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> a bit of a mismatch there. <laughs> But unfortunately, their sort of relationship is cooling off and she's discovered that she's pregnant and she has to tell him that she doesn't intend to keep the baby. And this, in a film in 1974, filmed in 73, the same year that Roe v. Wade was decided in the Supreme Court. And there is this argument where the man, Keir Dulay, says to Olivia Hussey, you can't make a decision like that. You haven't even asked me. So there's this assumption that... It's the man that makes a decision about what happens inside a woman's body, which (laughs) seemed from today's perspective entirely wrong. You know, I don't think I understood it the first time I saw it, but revisiting it here in, in 2019, when the whole abortion thing story came up, I was shocked all over again. I thought, yeah. wait a second, isn't this in the early 70s? I looked, yeah, 1974. Wow. Mm. It's just such a thing for her to say and a, a thing for them to like go off topic on about for a second. Yeah. I mean, they have to bring him in as a suspect. So it's a brilliant way to do so. It is, yeah, because he reacts so negatively to the piano. <laughs> yeah, so he's a pianist and he plays very violent piano pieces to begin mm. with. <laughs> And uh, yeah, see, I think he's taking a final exam and he's playing this piece. I don't know if it's his own composition or if he's chosen it, but it seems to consist of just ramming his hands against the keys. With a sledgehammer. (laughs) (laughs) And then it obviously doesn't go well and he trashes the piano and it puts him right on the suspect list, I think. Yeah, that scene was horrifying Mm. when he was smashing up a Steinway grand piano. (laughs) (laughs) It's my worst nightmare. Yeah, and it does make me wonder because the score as well, Carl Zittrich's score has a lot of prepared piano sounds and the scraping of piano strings and it's very eerie and and it makes me wonder where even the use of the piano on the soundtrack is trying to hint that Keir Dulay, look at Keir Dulay, he's evil. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah. That's probably true. <laughs> but it's all a red herring, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also found with a lot of slasher films, the characters are mostly unlikable and you're kind of rooting for the killer to kill off all these really <laughs> annoying characters. But in this movie, it's completely the opposite. It's these really lovable, lovable characters. Apart from the only unlikable character is Keir Dulé's character. And so you immediately just assume, yes, he is the killer. But of course. Mm-hmm. Wasn't she one of the first final girls, quote-unquote? Yeah, I guess she is, isn't she? You know, here I am, a complete adult, going, don't go back in there! Forget (laughs) it, forget Run out the door! (laughs) I was exactly the same. (laughs) Yeah, because it's that situation where the policeman phones up after they've traced where all of these obscene phone calls from the killer are coming from, and it's... They're coming from inside the house, get out. Mm. But she doesn't go. And Olivia Hussey's been quite a strong defender of her character. She says, no, I'm not dumb to go back in. I'm worried about my friends. Yeah, I didn't think it was stupid. I just thought, stop already. You need to (laughs) I know they're dead. (laughs) And then I was worried that he was going to catch her by the hair. Yeah. I don't know. Could have been, I want to wear my hair down. And they just said, okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, she does do all the wrong things. She goes right. back in the house and she even runs into the basement. Good idea. Mm. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but she was blazing a trail as the final girl. And I think she does pretty well for herself. She arms oh. herself and goes back in there to save her friends. So it's hard not to root for her, bless her. Mm. And she does triumph over the supposed killer as well. She manages to clobber to death her boyfriend. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> she does, but she's wrong. She's got the wrong man. Well, she scared yeah. the real killer to the point where he's hiding in the attic. He never came, you know, to try to get her again. He's like up there chilling until she leaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's just rocking his rocking chair, <laughs> singing to himself with the cat. <laughs> yeah, I have questions about this cat because I'm always the animal person. Uh-huh. What happened to the cat? Is the cat in the final frame and I didn't see it? I didn't no, see it. The cat is such a, it's a beautiful cat, first of all. So you're going to notice it. And then it becomes a plot point where she's, you know, Mrs. Mack is looking for it. Mm. And I thought, okay, you can't just drop the cat then, you know? <laughs> I hate when people do that in movies and I understand why they have to do it. But I'm the person, I'm the, you know, the irritating person that always goes, where's the dog? Where's the cat? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, I'm the one. <laughs> I'm always the person that's rooting for the pet to survive because in so many of the Psycho on the Loose movies in the 90s particularly, it was always the bunny or the dog or the cat that bought it first. And I was always against that. I hated that, but I noticed people in the present time make a point of saving the animal now because we all grew up with that, oh, don't kill the dog, (laughs) don't kill the bunny. (laughs) Yeah, someone else making their own movie, they're not they're gonna make sure that dog survives, you know. And it's so cute because we all know why they're doing it, because we can't take it. <laughs> Dogs gotta live, damn it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like to think that Claude is living happily. I think the last time you see Claude the cat in this movie. He is sitting on one of the killer's victims' laps, licking her dead face. Yes, yes, yes. It's on the rocking chairs. And, you know, they had to put um, tuna on her. Oh. And the cat has real claws, and she didn't have to be dead. So if the cat's, like, you know, stabbing her with the claws, she couldn't move. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't like cats, it would have been brutal. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Let's assume Claude lived. Yeah. Definitely. I always feel sorry for characters that get killed off early in the film as well because the actors just have to play a dead, lifeless corpse for the remainder of the film. Right. (laughs) But you know what? She packed a punch. She was such a strong character. I didn't see her dying because they they really introduced her as a, you know, she was a good character. I mean, they took time. She wasn't a red shirt. No. You know, I I was surprised because she seemed like a major character. Yeah, I did find the film really misleading in who was the main character because at the start you think, oh, Barb's the main character. Right. But no, she gets killed off halfway through and then it's like, who are we following here? It was quite an ensemble cast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in in retrospect, after you know it, you know you're following Olivia Hussey, but Mm. at first you might not. It just looks like a crowd of women, you know, and I love the character of Mrs. Mack. Uh, See, we won't take the time now to show Mrs. Mack and to develop her and show the bottles hidden everywhere and to know that she's got a sister. We don't have time for that anymore. And that's a, that's really marks it to me as a, as a 70s movie is yeah. taking the time with setting up the character. Yeah. It's not that you're going to cry for Mrs. Mack or anything, but it 
it's not just a body dying. It's one of our people. Yeah. yeah. Conrad, you mentioned it as well. There's so much humor in this film. So every character is so likable and mm. so much warmth with every character. And every character has their own very specific quirks. Mrs. Mack is retrieving all these hidden bottles from all over the house. And Barb with her very cynical, sarcastic humor and talking about turtles having sex for, <laughs> for 24 hours or something. <laughs> Yeah, that's Margot Kidder. This is a very early role for her. I think it's before Superman. I think it's, yeah, it's before the Amityville horror. So this is really when she was breaking through and she makes such an impact in this movie. She's very funny. I think he just let her go and said, I'll tell you when it's too much. I I believe that's true. I think I read that someplace because I don't think anybody sat down and wrote that. It's got so specifically weird. I had the feeling, and, and maybe it's just because she's a really great actress, is that she was riffing. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, certainly Keir Dulé's memory of it was that he met her and found her to be essentially Barb, uh-huh. but he wonders in retrospect whether she was just staying in character the whole time. Oh. Yeah, maybe. But it is, it's an amazing ensemble cast of characters and it's really hard to see them being picked off because you do like all of them. Mm. And it's unusual, again, if this is the proto-slasher movie, the first person to get killed is the Virgin. Mm. Barb actually refers to her as a, quote, professional virgin. <laughs> I know a professional <laughs> virgin when I see one. And she ends up with a plastic bag on her head. And Lynn Griffin, who plays Claire, she's amazing in terms of holding her breath for very, very long takes with a plastic bag over her head. Oh, yeah. That's one of the grossest things ever, oh. the image of her in the rocking chair. With- it's awful. Yeah. yeah. It's very memorable. Apparently, Lynn Griffin still does the convention circuit. And if people look at her strangely and wonder who she is, she does bring a plastic bag with her and put it over her head. No way. <laughs> she does. <laughs> she's a really funny woman. Oh, lady. my God. I was wondering, because I wow. lost track of her, but I thought, well, she's a really strong actress to be the first one to kill off. Yeah. That's really cool that she does. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. She knows the image that people most remember her for, and so she owns it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for Random Trivia! So, Dan, what fascinating nugget of trivia have you dragged down from the attic and unwrapped from its plastic for us to hear today? (laughs) Oh, well, uh, apparently uh, the title of this film was actually changed to Silent Night, Evil Night because the American distributors feared the title Black Christmas might cause the film to be mistaken for a exploitation film, which... I, I mean, uh, admittedly, I actually did originally think this was a black exploitation film when I first heard oh. the title. When I first heard the title, but obviously not. And <laughs> the change in title didn't actually uh, increase audience members to go see it, so uh, they just changed it back. And Black Christmas was uh, a much more of a winner in terms of <laughs> getting people in seats. So, <laughs> Black Christmas it is. Wow, I had no idea. Black Christmas is such a great title, though. I know, I know. I mean, Silent Night, Evil Night just sounds a little bit like a a trashy slasher flick, whereas Black Christmas is a little bit more ambiguous. Yeah, there's another movie, Silent Night, Deadly Night, isn't there? Yes, I think so. Yeah, and people were picketing that, because I think it's Santa Claus killing people or something. (laughs) 
Oh, uh, not the sort of thing that kids should watch. No, that's not festive. No. <laughs> well, the only nugget of trivia that I had that isn't very festive is that uh, Keir Doulet on the commentary track, he mentioned that when this movie was due to have its first network premiere airing on television, which <laughs> I can hardly believe given the content, but they, they must have changed a lot of it. But apparently it was around about the time that Ted Bundy broke into a university, a college rather, and killed lots of young women in their sleep. So they pulled it at the last minute and it did not air. And that seems very sensible. Yeah, wise choice there. (laughs) Yeah, and it was going to be Christmas as well. Yeah, it's it's just, it's not a good idea, is it? And that's our trivia. Yeah. Talking about other characters, like even the killer, you never see his face ever in the film. You see an eye and that's horrifying. Yeah. That scene is, yeah, very, very creepy scene. But uh, you never see his face, just kind of hear him breathing. And it's not the same Michael Myers breathing in Halloween. It's, It's more of a kind of guttural, disgusting, gross kind of yeah. through your mouth breathing. So you get a lot of that upside down because it collapses your larynx in a way that you just can't do when you're standing straight up. Wow, oh. really? <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> wow. I'd That's... love to see the behind the scenes of that. <laughs> At least as good as the movie, right? I'm going to hang upside down for this take. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> But those phone calls are pretty terrifying, it has to be said. Yeah, they're more than one voice, right? I mean, I don't know exactly who, but they're more. Yeah, I think there's a female voice in there and there's a male voice. And it sounds sort of like the tapes of Linda Blair speaking in tongues in The Exorcist. Mm. It's all sort of mixed together and shrieking and screaming. And yeah, it's pretty disturbing stuff. It's like a phenomenon. It doesn't sound like something that would happen in real life. It sounds like there's more than one person there. Yeah, It's sort of some sort of uh, otherworldly thing. I still find it really convincing, though. Even though I know it's three different voices or or whatever, it's still so disturbing enough to be... I I believe it. I believe this person has all these multiple kind of personality voices that he's doing. And also, I I think it's the first use in a more mainstream film of the forbidden C word. Oh, right. Yeah. (laughs) It's running around a lot. (laughs) Yes, which was actually censored in this country, in the UK. Oh, right. Because you, you guys say it way more than we do. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, isn't it? But obviously not in 1974. Right. I don't know why. Yeah. I think it's the first instance of the, the calls are coming from inside the house, that whole babysitter and the man upstairs urban legend. Oh. Because, of course... When a Stranger Calls was in 1979. And there are other ways in which I think A Black Christmas was very influential. I mean, obviously, it's it's thought of as the wellspring from which all of the slasher horrors sprung from. But there are other things in there, too, that I noticed. Like, you have a character that starts searching for a cat and falls victim to the boogeyman of the film mm. and then dragged up into a hatch in the ceiling. And I thought, hang on, right. this is alien. Oh, right, <laughs> right, right. And then you've got John Saxon as the town's police chief. 
and the mother of the house is a lush who keeps hiding booze around the house, and that's a nightmare in Elm Street. (laughs) (laughs) There are echoes of this movie everywhere. Mm. I I especially found it so similar to the Scream movies, even the, the phone calls and the phone calls coming from the house. The only difference with the Scream movies is the calls come before the murders happen, whereas in this movie the calls come after the murders happen. Mm. Everybody grew up loving this movie and either consciously or unconsciously, you know, it just informed their own work like to the max. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's been hugely influential, even though if you ask people, have you seen Black Christmas? Most of the people I speak to, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, of course, it's different. But for many years, I'd say, oh, Black Christmas. And they go, what? Mm. What's that? Some horror movie. I guess you don't know what it is. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So true. It's really strange. Because I'd only seen this film recently and seeing Halloween many times. I just think, wow, Halloween's just ripping off Black Christmas to a T. I mean, I know Bob Clark gave his blessings to it, but it it just seems like this is just a more polished Black Christmas. Mm. (laughs) Holiday. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, what's also really interesting about this film is it doesn't have any of those really jump scare moments that really irritate me, like the quiet, quiet bang sort of moments. In this film, it doesn't do that. Often there's no sound or like no big musical cue or anything. It's just a, oh my God, that's something creepy. And the visuals speak for themselves without having this accompanying loud, obnoxious sound. You know, that's an interesting point. People do go for jump scares, but this is like a quiet dread, like, please don't walk towards that closet. Mm. (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) And I think that's, you know what? I mean, I know people are probably lovers of jump scares, but I think that there's a group of people that really don't dig it and would prefer the slow and steady dread. Mm. You know, jump scares, it's more like you're on edge. It's like, I know they're going to do it. I know that, ah, okay. (laughs) But a dread is also scary in a different way. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I completely agree. I, I kind of see this movie similar to The Shining, which is this underlying menace just always happening behind the scenes. Uh, And then you just kind of feel a little bit unnerved throughout the whole film. And then by the end of watching this film, I just felt really just icky and just like I needed to take a shower or something. (laughs) Because especially that ending, that very ambiguous ending where where Jess is in bed and she's like uh, left alone and then the camera kind of pans down the hallway and up into the attic and you hear Billy just kind of muttering to himself. And then then the phone rings and you're like, what? What does that mean? And then credits roll and it's just... Yeah, it's uh, it ruined me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it leaves the whole thing open-ended. You don't know who the killer is, what his motives are, whether he's going to get caught, whether he's going to stop, n- nothing. It's even more open-ended than Halloween, which sort of steals a page from this again because Michael Myers escapes at the end of that and has this sort of almost magical quality to him that he can mm. be shot six times, fall over a balcony and just walk away. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it's a different kind of magic though than Billy has where he's got all these different voices. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, this killer is like, his voice is frightening, but you never hear Michael talk. No, that's true. He's just referred to as a shape and he's just this unstoppable force, whereas Billy really is a character and Bob Clark did say that they did work out a backstory for what he's talking about. Ah, right. You can hear it. You can hear it. Something about his sister, you know, will get in trouble, don't tell him, and something hideous, you know, went down in his family when he was a kid. You just know it. Yeah. But he's carrying around with him reenacting. Because he calls Margot Kidder. Um, refer to her as Agnes? 
when he walks in? Yeah, I think he does. That's my mom's name, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> These inexplicable things, like what was the glass menagerie sitting there next to Barb? I mean, we never knew that she collected that stuff before. I'm thinking, oh, it's like the glass menagerie. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Stab, stab, stab. <laughs> yeah, and her death scene is quite different from the others. It's almost like a giallo movie, like an Argento movie. It's quite stylistic and it's intercutting between the violence, which you don't see explicitly, and a group of Christmas carolers outside who are mm. singing so loudly that Jess can't hear the murder that's happening upstairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's this contrast between the girl with the crystal unicorn and <laughs> this lovely Christmas choir. I mean, this is another thing I was going to ask you, Kelly. What do you think it is about Christmas that makes us want to make or watch... On a trash Oh, yeah, horror movies. What? <laughs> well, I trapped it. Yeah. Reverse. I think everybody's like, we have a little bit more permission to be honest about things. And I think everybody's had that tension about, there's such a buildup, there's such a thing about Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. It's so much pressure. There's so much family stuff going on. I just think it's, you know, horror lives to build tension and then release it all at once. And I just think that we're drawn to that. It's like something that's always kind of scared us as people. Where can we punch a hole in that? Yeah. You know, and I think it's Christmas right. is perfect because everyone can kind of go, yeah, you know, that's kind of how I really feel about it, too. <laughs> I mean, like, look, she's listening to those carolers and they spent a lot of time, you know, making that awesome carolers. And, and it wasn't they were just standing there cut to the carolers. And then the look on her face mm. when Barb is dying and they cut to her face. Creepiest facial expression ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Barb is dead. She's got that creepy smile on her face. Yeah. And as the life seeps out of Barb's body, <laughs> Jess applauds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really twisted. So Christmas is the, you know, there's a such a feeling of the, the childhood thing. It's such a, um, a close to the bone holiday type thing. I think it's really easy to get in there and access emotions. Yeah, I, the only thing I could think of is that there has been a tradition for Christmas Gothic ever since Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol that there's just this tradition of ghost stories at Christmas. And I, I'm not entirely sure why, but I think it is because it's such a lovely special time that it just... I don't know, maybe the adults want something for them. Christmas is for kids, and then this is the Christmas for adults. Right, because they just spent mm. two months stressing out about it, but on their last nerve, and they want to see people die, okay? <laughs> 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 we have Krampus, too, though. We have Krampus. Yeah, introducing darker European folklore about Christmas. Yeah, and then you have things like gremlins, which are just sort of wickedly funny. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things that Christmas seems to attract this kind of alternative programming. You see such sweetness, you know, in the music and the lights and everything, and then we destroy it. And it just seems <laughs> exceptionally wrong on our part to do it. But I do love it. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Award. A few too many brandies. I'm sure you're all lurking around Christmas trees, breathing heavily with anticipation for the Moobly Awards, where we present our favourite decoratively gift-wrapped parts of the film in a number of tryptophan-inducing categories. Is that a good thing? Yes. <laughs> Best quote! 
Well, I don't think it's going to be any surprise that my favourite quote comes from the acerbic barb played mm. wonderfully by the sadly missed Margot Kidder. Ah, oh, yes. Uh, because she has so many fantastic lines in this movie. And this one comes when uh, the sorority girls are gathered around the phone listening to one of the obscene phone calls, and which is very rude, laced with C words, but also characterised by having lots of different voices. And Claire says... Could that be one person? And Barb replies, No, Claire, that's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their annual obscene phone call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. That quote is magical. Uh, because it's such a disturbing, disturbing scene, um, hearing those voices <laughs> and all those uh, curse words in there. <laughs> Barb just breaks the tension with a quip like that. It's uh, it's yeah. marvellous. She's amazing. I love her in this movie. What was your favourite quote? Uh, exactly the same quote. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yes. Most 70s moment. I would like to say, uh, film technical-wise, uh, a lot of crash zooms in this film. Yeah. Where items or shocking scenes are punctuated by a, a crash zoom just rushing forwards mm. or rushing backwards. <laughs> uh, it's such a 70s technique. Like, I can think of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Lots of that mm. happened in that movie as well. But uh, it's, it's not it's something that really you really see anymore, apart from maybe a Quentin Tarantino movie. No, it's not. And it's it's one of those things that I think is really dated, and I hate the fact that Kubrick uses it in The Shining uh-huh. a couple of times. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I wish he didn't. Yeah, it really dates the movie. That's yeah. a good pick. Mm. How about you, Conrad? <laughs> 70s. For me, I think it's a technology thing again, and it's the moment where the police are tracing the call to find out oh, that it's coming from inside yes. the house. Yeah, And it's literally a guy in a hard hat in a machine room with tons of clacking, crunching machinery, mm-hmm. literally with his finger tracing where the call is going in the system. And it's just so noisy and amazing. Yeah. Clunky. I was completely dumbfounded that that is how they actually trace calls back in the 70s. Physically walking down a room (laughs) trying to find where the signal was coming from. Wow. Definitely not the way it happens now. No. I hope not. Best hair or costume. I really loved how Jess was dressed in this movie. Like, lots of yellow. I don't know whether you know yeah. you noticed, but she was often wearing yellow in scenes. Mm. But there's, I think it's the first scene, she's wearing a knit woolen sweater with these two giant <laughs> hands knitted on the front of it. Who yes. would wear that? <laughs> Especially a girl, because it looks exactly. like they're grabbing at her breasts. <laughs> it looks like that Janet Jackson album cover. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly the same thing I picked. It's just so outrageous. It's terrible. I don't I don't know. It's, it's not flattering. <laughs> favorite scene. My favorite scene, although she's probably my favorite character, is the death of Barb mm. because 
It's a very stylishly shot and lit and edited scene. It's very much like an Argento movie, like a giallo killing with this crystal unicorn she's being stabbed to death with. And when she wakes up, you have this shot of him poised over her bed with it raised over his head and just this one shaft of light illuminating one of his eyes. Mm, And it's a really disturbing shot. And of course, it's intercut with Jess watching Christmas carolers sing a pretty Christmas tune outside. (laughs) So the whole thing is really disturbing. That is definitely my favourite. I think it sums up the irony of the Christmas horror movie perfectly Mm, for mm. our our episode. I always get so much more unsettled with a a, a horrific um, visual accompanied by happy festive music. Yes. (laughs) I'm just so much more disturbed. Yeah, it's perfect. Mm. How about you? Well, I would say that scene is definitely up there, but uh, that last scene, I don't know, it it just haunts me, that very, very last scene just before the credits. And, And I mentioned it before, I just, I can't handle it. Yeah. How slow the camera moves down the hallway up into the attic and then and then Billy just muttering, it's me, Billy. Just, it's, <laughs> oh. And then when it pans out uh, in the exterior shot and uh, it's, you hear the phone ring and then it's credits and then the phone throughout the entire credits. God, it just makes that sound so much more ominous and so much more mm. sort of fear-inducing. Yeah. It's a really strong and disturbing ending to the movie. It's awful. Especially <laughs> pulling away from the sorority house and you can still see Claire in the attic window, yeah. dead, with the plastic bag over her head. Yeah. Merry oh. Christmas to one and all. Yeah. <laughs> Most cliched horror moment. I have to say it. It's a horror The don't go in there moment where Jess is, she knows that the killer's in the house. She's been told to just leave the house, but no, she doesn't. She picks up a fire poker and goes upstairs. So yeah, that's she does. The, the don't go in there moment in the horror film. Oh. <laughs> I was I was shouting it at the screen. <laughs> I, I think that's the point. Yeah, I've written exactly the same thing. Terrified heroine uh, runs up the stairs or in the basement, not oh, out of the house. Yeah. Run out of the house. Mm. But yes, as we said, Olivia Hussey has defended that moment. She's being brave. She's defending her friends. So mm. Mm. okay. But still. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Favourite special effect. I didn't actually think there were any special effects in this movie. So I just went for an amazing personal effect, which is Lynn Griffin, the actress who plays Claire. Just her breath control Uh and her ability to keep her eyes still when she's playing dead in a plastic bag, Mm. I thought was amazing. I would agree with that as well, because it's hard playing a corpse mm. as as much of it's a bit of a chore it's hard being that still and i it's one of my mm. pet peeves of, of 
actor bad acting. When an actor can't play a corpse well, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you see a blink or you see their stomach moving up and down because they're breathing. So, yeah. Yeah. She does it well. She does an amazing job, even with a cat licking her and clawing her or somebody <laughs> rocking her violently back and forth while singing some bizarre song at her. And she keeps her eyes fixed and dilated and her breath isn't there. Oh, it's amazing. Well mm. done, Lynn Griffin. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Did you find an effect that you liked in this movie? No, that was that was one I wrote as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> okay. Best sound effect. Well, I was going to say the breathing because it was just so unnerving, but I I just like the use of no sound in this film, like no big yeah. noises, no jump scares. It was so refreshing <laughs> to watch a yeah. film that was just unnerving <laughs> because of the circumstances and not unnerving because someone shut the door too loudly or a cat jumps out of a curtain or, you know, <laughs> it was refreshing. <laughs> yeah, I'm amazed. And also the last scene that uh, I really loved, that really haunting scene, mm. there's only the sound of wind and a ticking clock. And because they only had those two sounds and no music and nothing else, it made it way, way more uncomfortable to watch. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. really commend how well they restrained sound in this, in this movie. Yeah, they did. Because it's a universal truth that everybody loves to fill an awkward silence. And if you're placed in an awkward silence in a movie, it's really disturbing. Mm. Especially in, in a theatre, if you watch a movie in a theatre and the silence in there. Like when I went to watch A Quiet Place, the oh, silence. Yeah. <laughs> In the theatre during those sequences, nobody dared rustle anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how about yeah. you, Conrad? Any favourite sound effects? Well, I was thinking of the cat, actually, because as you say, it's amazing for a horror movie with a cat that it doesn't get thrown into a shot screeching at some point yeah. to make you jump. <laughs> but when they do use it, it's quite effective. I don't think it is the cat. I think it's the killer that's making those strange echoey noises from the oh. attic that lure Mrs. Mack to her death. Right. I think it's him. But mm. it's a very odd sound and it's heavily processed. So I really liked that. I thought it was great. Very right. disturbing. Yeah, right. Most funniest scene. Although Margot Kidder is by far the funniest thing in this movie, mm -hmm. my favourite scene is actually one that focuses on Mrs. Mack, the house mother, who's a bit of a lush. Oh, yes. <laughs> Plus, I love the scene where she's showing around Claire's father and she lets this is when Claire's gone missing and the father's wondering where she is and Mrs. Mack obviously has let him into her room and the first thing that you see is one of Claire's posters which is of this stern Quaker style old lady with needlework on her lap but as the camera pans across the scene from one yeah. frame of this to the next the last one is this woman leaning forward and giving you the finger <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a poster of a naked couple lying on the ground together, which Mrs. Mack is sort of trying to lean on and put her hand over the naughty parts. Yes, yes. So that this father can't see it. And it's so awkward. And later on, after they separate, because she goes to get her coat and bag because they've agreed to go somewhere and he's going to drive her, she hears the cat and she's shouting, where are you, Claude? Where are you? And she says, Claude, you little prick, <laughs> just as this guy comes up the stairs. 
stairs. It's perfectly timed. Yes, yes. <laughs> she just looks at him and says, it's very kind of you to give me a lift, Mr. Harrison. <laughs> As though nothing's happened. Mm. It's hilarious. She is so funny in this movie. Marion Waldman mm. as Mrs. Mack. I, I just loved how she just kept finding bottles of alcohol everywhere. <laughs> in the toilet, in a book. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, that thing where she's she's cut like the outline of a whiskey bottle in every page of a book to hide something in it. Yeah. I, I was really inspired the first time I saw that and I tried to do that with a book of mine. It's oh, yes. not with booze, obviously, <laughs> but just to create a secret hidey hole. It's uh-huh, really uh-huh. hard. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of pain. how about you what was your funniest scene another line from barb so Uh. she's talking to her mother uh and it's like christmas (laughs) eve or something (laughs) and she's just found that her mother's seeing someone and and barb can't go to see her because her mum wants to have some romantic date she replies you're a real gold-plated whore you know (laughs) (laughs) Not the sort of thing I would say to my mother, but it's hilarious. <laughs> Christmas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, Barb is amazing. There's that wonderful scene in the police station where she manages to convince the dim-witted oh, sergeant behind yeah. the desk that the name of her telephone exchange is Fallacia. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, yes. Barb is amazing in this movie. Yes. And that's our move, please. It's the season of sharing. So, Gary, what did you think of this movie? Well, I admired the way it intercut between Argento-style murder scenes and bourgeois festive tropes, and the transformation of the psycho murder into a quasi-supernatural force was executed more effectively than Carpenter's Halloween. Wow! Gary, that is amazing insight into Black Christmas. Black what? I was talking about Grease 2. Uh, Gary, of course. Worth a shot. Merry Christmas anyway. Welcome back, everyone. So now's the time for the final verdict. Should the original version of Black Christmas be set free to invade sorority houses and make a new batch of girls his victims? Or should it be stuffed up in the attic with a plastic bag over its head to be forgotten forever? (laughs) Kelly, you are a special guest today and you picked this movie. Uh, Would you like to plead its case? Certainly. I feel like this is the easiest um, attorney job I've ever had in my life, pleading this case, because I think for so many other horror movies I think that so many people were inspired and riffed off of it, either intentionally or unintentionally. I just think the character development is amazing. I think that the way that they develop the killer is we learn things from them that, that you know that have never been done before that we have never seen before and we learned a lot from it. I think it's a classic and I think absolutely it deserves a crowning place in our horror lives. I just do. Yes, I think that's very well argued. Well, first, because you know that there's no way we're going to throw this woman back. (laughs) (laughs) 
Dan, how about you? 100% agree. I think this movie should be watched by every single horror fan in the world. Anyone wanting to get into horror, uh, filmmaking as well, should watch this. It's incredible filmmaking, great use of camera work, economical use of camera work as well. A lot of one shots and focus pulling, wandering around the room. And yeah, you just felt really Mm. deeply unsettled throughout the entire film. And I think that's a good thing rather than every 10 minutes getting a fright because some big loud noise has happened. Agreed on the characters as well. You never see horror movies these days with so much character development and character interaction. So uh, I was really saddened (laughs) when all of these lovable characters were getting killed off. And yeah, that ending just ruined me and I will never, (laughs) never be the same again because yeah, that's uh, having that phone call ring out throughout the entire credits as well. Oh, uh, yeah, deeply yeah. disturbed, <laughs> but in all the best ways. <laughs> yes, well, I, I don't think I'm going to be the party pooper, especially as it's <laughs> Christmas. Um, I think this is an amazing film. People do need to seek it out and watch it if they haven't seen it. If you think Halloween is yeah. the source of all great slasher movies, you're wrong. Take a few steps backwards in time and watch Bob Clark's classic because you get to see everything that John Carpenter picked up on. And it's a really intense, disturbing, psychological thriller. And even though when you say to people, it's a movie about a stalker that preying upon girls in a sorority house, you think, oh no, this is going to be terrible, Mm. exploitative Mm -hmm. uh, trash. It really isn't that. In fact, it's probably one of the first realistic depictions of a group of adult women at college that had ever been committed to film. And they're all likable. And they're all real people. And this is a very disturbing situation they're in. <laughs> I think just in terms of how it's how it's been made and how effective it is, it deserves to be seen. So I'm adding my vote. I think it should be set free <laughs> to enjoy mm. rampaging mm. <laughs> through Christmases to come. <laughs> so I guess we are setting it free. We are setting it free. Yay! Goodbye, Black Christmas. <laughs> No attic for you. It's crowded in that attic anyway. It is, yeah. There's a lot of people stuffed up there. And also, uh, I would like to note that no one should ever watch the 2006 remake. It does not do it justice. (laughs) Oh, wow. I haven't seen that. I haven't been able to. I I didn't want to. I just, I just, people said don't watch it. I went, okay, I won't. No, not recommended. (laughs) <laughs> but it's it's fascinating that there is a new remake of it coming out pretty soon from Blumhouse. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, Blumhouse have hired a female director to take the reins for this one, Sophia Takal, oh. who has done some amazing films like Always Shine. And she's already done a seasonal themed episode of Hulu's holiday themed series, Into the Dark. But in that case, she was doing New Year. And that was the the best reviewed episode of that particular series. So keeping my fingers crossed, this could be really interesting. Yes, I had a chance to talk to April Wolf, who's the co-writer. And I just think those ladies are, are really going to come up with something amazing for 2019. 
I think we're going to be thrilled with what we see. Well, the, another thing standing in its favor, Dan, is it's being filmed in New Zealand. Mm. Really? Oh, yeah. bonus points from me. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, Kelly, it's been amazing having you on the show, and I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on Black Christmas. Where can they follow you and what, what can they expect to see you next? Well, thank you. I am on Instagram with my name, Kelly Maroney. It's K-E-L-L-I-M-A-R-O-N-E-Y. And if you misspell it, don't feel bad because when I was on True Blood, they misspelled my name in the credits. And, you know, I've been around way too long for them to be misspelling my name, but that happens a lot. Anyway, so Instagram, Twitter, um, I'm on Twitter a lot too. Again, my name. I'm trying to make it super easy for y'all. K-E-L-L-I-M-A-R-O-N-A-Y. I've got a couple of groups on Facebook, um, my official Facebook page, and actress Kelly Maroney. And I'm setting up a YouTube channel. My YouTube channel that disappeared on me, and so now I have to set up a new one, but it's in its infancy stages. But it will be there. Um, I have a movie coming out called um, Exorcism at 60,000 Feet. With a cast oh. of icons, Adrian Barbeau, Lance Henriksen, Bill Mosley, Bai Ling, Kevin O'Connor. Um, I always think of it as if if you saw the bunch of us all get on the same airplane and we weren't going to a convention, get off the airplane. That <laughs> 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 one because something horrible is going to happen. I mean, if one of us got on the airplane, but if all of us bail really fast as you can i've got a couple of festival films i just had one um at dances with wolves called blowing up right now and i have a a spa day which i get to play a um i get to play um an alcoholic milf so yeah that's my inner margot kidder like you know decades later (laughs) and um not exactly I'm just teasing. And something called a well-respected man. So there's there's stuff to be in the future. Yes. Wow. So much to enjoy. <laughs> I'd love to be doing Sophie's Choice, you know, or, you know, something masterpiece theater. However, um, these are also every bit as fun. And they do tend to stick with people. And for that, I'm mm-hmm. fortunate. I'm very fortunate. I'm very grateful. Well, I'm, I'm sure everybody will love to check those out. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will. And if you want to follow us through the holiday season, mm. uh, you can look us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Movie Oubliette, all one word, or you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you fancy supporting the show and giving us a special gift, we'll always remember you can become a patron on Patreon. For as little as a dollar, you can suggest movies for us to do in future episode, and for five dollars, you get access to special previously unreleased clips, including extended conversations with our special guests. Yes, so why don't you use that five dollars you got from your grandma and become <laughs> a patron? <laughs> yes, and it'll give you a warm, glowing, magical feeling inside. Mm, along with all that eggnog. Mm-hmm. God, eggnog. Okay, Conrad, so what will we be doing in the new year? Well, Star Wars fever has hit the world because, of course, the last episode in the Skywalker trilogy has mm. just been released over Christmas. The Mandalorian is on Disney+. Plus, So we thought we'd talk about one of the lesser-known Star Wars movies. It is... 
Ewoks, the battle for Endor. Oh, good, is it? <laughs> well, I've never seen it, so it should be interesting. <laughs> and we will be joined by a guest. Yes. A very avid Star Wars fan. Yeah, it should be exciting. Well, thanks, Kelly, for joining us for this Christmas episode. Thank you. I love being on Movie Oubliette. I love saying it. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure entirely, and and I just had a wonderful time with you guys, and I just feel like, what other movies should we talk about now? So it was very much fun, and I thank you. Thank you. Happy holidays, and a happy new year to you, too. Thank you so much, you too. And thank you, listeners, for sticking with us for another year, and look forward to the new year. Yes, Merry Christmas, season's greetings, and happy new year to everyone. Hope to see you next year. Bye. I love you guys. You're awesome. Goodbye. Bye. of turtle that can screw for three days without stopping. You don't believe me, do you? Well, I mean, how, how could I make something like that up?